Hi friends, welcome back today again to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And this project is to work together through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Why not make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily lives and work through the whole Bible together with us over around about seven years, we estimate. You can do that by just clicking on the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts from. And that way you'll never miss another single episode. If you are here for the first time, I'd just like to let you know that there are lots of ways that you can connect and access other teaching that I make available, always free, and you can do that by searching for me, Pastor Jeremy McCandless, or visiting the bibleproject.buzzsprout.com, which is the place where it's hosted. You may very well see active links to wherever you get your podcasts from, and that's fine. But if not, just visit the podcast hosting website, and you'll find active links there to lots of ways you can connect with us, as well as access a free transcript of each and every one of these talks. So with that said, you're very welcome. If you've joined this community for the first time, you are doubly welcome. And we'll pick up today on this one. Today's talk I've called The Result of Being Unprepared. I suspect we've all had the experience when we've walked into a room and everyone is in the middle of a conversation and you kind of struggle to pick up and understand exactly what they've been talking about. Or maybe you've been in the middle of a conversation and someone else walked into the room and that they totally misunderstood what was being said because they didn't hear what was being said from the very beginning. Maybe another situation, have you ever come into church late and only caught the last half of the minister's message? Of course, that can be problematic because if we don't hear the first part of a sermon, we might indeed draw the wrong conclusion. Well, what we're going to do today, in a sense, is we're going to break into the middle of a conversation, but I still hope I'll be able to keep you and it within the context of what was being said and yet still grasp the main point that Jesus is making. I mentioned in yesterday's episode that we're in the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and he will spend it in Jerusalem and during this time he's going to have a lot of conversations with people, how might I put it, people who are ill disposed towards him, to put it mildly. These conversations are recorded for us in the scriptures, particularly in Matthew, and most of them we'll see are conversations with the religious leaders of the day. So he arrives in Jerusalem at the weekend, on the Saturday and the Sabbath, and here we are on the Tuesday, and he's in the middle of an encounter with the religious leaders. And it began, for us looking at it a couple of days ago, when he was asked by what authority he was doing the things he was doing. Remember, he'd just gone in and cleared the temple courtyard, and he had also said that he taught and he healed people in that place after he'd done that. And these religious leaders came to him and they wanted to know the authority by which he was doing these things. And in essence, he answered them by telling them that they did it by the same authority that John the Baptist had talked about. And John the Baptist, of course, had previously said that he recognized Jesus. Well, he shouted, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So John the Baptist definitely knew that Jesus was the Messiah. 
So in response to that questioning, Jesus tells these guys three parables. And these three parables were designed to answer the question ultimately by what authority he was doing these things. But if you look at these three parables carefully, you discover that something else is going on because he goes beyond just talking about himself and his authority. Yes, he talks to them directly, but he also indirectly talks about them and thereby he's sort of signally talking to the other people who are gathered around, the greater crowd, the multitude, the people that aren't part and parcel of the actual conversation. And by doing so, he uses, uses this as an opportunity to talk about people in general and about how many people are not properly prepared or not being properly prepared to enter the kingdom of God. So what we've done so far is look at the first and the second parable. And today, in our third day, we're going to break into the middle of this teaching session, as it were, and we're going to catch up on the last part of the conversation, so to speak, which will be done, we would notice, by him using a third parable as an illustration of what he's about to say. And maybe the last part of this conversation represents a climax of what he meant to say throughout this message, and it contains what we really need to hear, because this lesson is the closing section, and he's summarizing and pointing out what they really need to learn, and us by nature as well. So with that in mind, listen to me as I read to you from Matthew chapter 22, the first 14 verses. Keeping in mind that this is the last and the third of a lengthy session of parabolic teaching and that Jesus is talking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And remember, he's talking to them on the last Tuesday of his life here on earth. And in my Bible, this parable is called the parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus spoke to them in parables again, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding blanket for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes, and he asked him, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now in one sense this is a fairly straightforward story, yet there's a lot of nuances to the story, so I'd like to begin suggesting that first of all, on the overview of this 14 verses, we can break the story into two basic parts. 
Firstly, there's this whole issue of the guests being invited to the wedding feast and the fact that they don't come. And in the second part of the parable, it has to do with the people, those who eventually do come to the banquet, and how some of them are not appropriately dressed. So let's begin with the wedding feast itself and the invitation. And it begins by telling us that this story, that the kingdom of heaven, is like this thing. It's like a king who arranges a marriage for his son and he sends his servants to call all those and invites them to the wedding. But the people aren't willing to come. Now, obviously, this is a parable. It says so of itself. And the various people in this parable are symbolic of groups of different types of people. Most agree that the king in this story is simply a symbol of the representation of God the Father, who's going to have a wedding feast, if you like, for his son. So he sends out the servants to invite the people to the wedding banquet. It is also often suggested that the people he sent out, of course, well, they're a symbol of the prophets in the Old Testament, who went out and invited the people into God's future coming kingdom. So in this passage, the banquet, the wedding feast, is a picture of the future kingdom of God. And that's a very helpful picture to hold in our mind. So what happens at the wedding feast? Well, it's obviously a time of celebration. It's a time of great joy. And this is a picture of what the future kingdom of God will be like. We're meant to recognize that and hold that. The Lord will come back and set up his kingdom. And that kingdom will be a time of great celebration. A time of joy when we will celebrate and be glad. So the picture being painted in this parable is that of the Lord throwing a wedding feast, a time of great celebration, a time of joy, and he sends out servants to invite the people to come. Now notice it says at the end of verse 3 that some are not willing to come. And of course the history of Israel was oftentimes one of Tremendous unwillingness to follow the Lord and to call where he called them. They were a rebellious people. So in this parable, the Lord simply says they were invited, but they weren't willing to come. So we see the king in a way switch to, shall we say, plan B in verse 4. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and are ready And all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Now I do need to explain that this is a sort of Middle Eastern custom that's being depicted here. Remember they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have telephones. And they couldn't email obviously. So the way of having a banquet was something like this. They started out a few days before the banquet by sending people out into the neighbourhood to tell everybody that there was going to be this great party in a couple of days so people could plan and that was the point at which they were invited. At that point, people would then be able to say, okay, I can come, so that on the day of the banquet, they would then wait, another invitation would be sent out on the day and it would go out and people would go out and say, okay, everything is now ready, so now come in and celebrate with us. So in the parable, these guests, as we can see clearly, they've already been invited. They were invited in this story two days before. But now things are ready, so they're told that they can now come in to the wedding feast. But look at how they respond in the next verses. But they made light of it, and they went their own ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. 
and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Now, many suggest, and I think rightly so, that this is a picture of the fact that God invited Israel to come into the kingdom in the era, particularly of the New Testament, but they were unwilling. Remember, after previously invited, now, again, John the Baptist, he came preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, and Jesus also comes preaching the kingdom of God is at hand as well. So in this parable, we now see the wedding banquet is now in fact ready. Everything is in place. And he sends the servants back out again. And he says, it's all ready. Come in now. And this is the time where what do they do? They make excuses. They make light of it. Went on their own way, considering only the things of this world, like their farms and their businesses. But some of them, on top of that, they seize the messengers, which some suggest, Clearly, this could be a reference to John the Baptist and Jesus himself, and they kill them. In other words, they completely reject what was offered. They not only said no, and they want to be no part of that, but some of them were in such outright opposition that they killed them. Indeed, John the Baptist, we saw, was beheaded, and Jesus, as we will see, is about to be crucified. Please do notice that in this passage there is a definite progression as the invitation proceeds. First of all, they are unwilling, then they make light of what is offered, and then finally we see they even kill the very messengers of God. The result of this is then seen in the next few verses. And when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, and he destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, for those who are invited were not worthy. Now virtually everyone who comes to this passage seeing it a reference to the fact that the Jews of Jesus' day, or to be more exact, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they wholly rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and as a result of that, they perished along with their city. And that generation, that indeed what has happened to them, Jerusalem was indeed soon destroyed after these events. Almost everybody who reads this sees this as a prophetic reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans, less than a generation later, less than 40 years later. They rejected the offer to come into the kingdom, and in this passage the kingdom is depicted as the celebration of the wedding feast, but we see the result of their rejection is they were destroyed. So the king, we now see, plan C if you like, He issues new instructions. Therefore, he says, go into the highways and find as many as you can find and invite them to the wedding. So these servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now I've told you this is the last section of a longer passage in which Jesus told three parables. Prior to this, he said the kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to another nation. Do you remember that? And now in this last parable, he's picturing these same events in the form of this story. And in that, the first the people were invited and then they rejected the offer. And then the invitation goes out to a wider group of people. In fact, it goes out into the highways. It goes outside the city, which is an obvious reference to the other nations, the Gentile nations again. So this wedding feast is clearly a picture of us, anyone, everyone, being called into the kingdom. The call to salvation. Jesus said elsewhere 
that unless someone is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this part of the passage is a picture of simply being invited into the kingdom of God. The king in the story is the one who provided the banquet, but now he's going out into the highways and byways and saying, guys, it's been rejected by those that I went to first. It's now an open invitation, a free banquet. But what I think is fascinating about this is that it is also a picture of not just the kingdom of God, but it is a picture of salvation and draws attention to the fact that salvation is a free gift, a free invitation. The gift of God is eternal life, the key word being gift. But although a gift is received for free by the recipient, that does not mean that someone didn't have to pay for that gift in the first place. And in this case, Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid for it when he died for the sins of the people and rose from the dead. But it's free to us, to any one of us who will receive it. All we have to do is accept and trust in Christ and his death as the payment of sin. And that is what the Bible tells us and how we are forgiven. Now, I said this passage was made up of two parts. There's the wedding feast and the initial call. And it does that by showing the order in which those events happen, as well as illustrating the freeness of the gift of the gospel. But the second part of the passage deals with these wedding garments and as they say the plot thickens a little let me just remind you and pick up again the story in verse 11 but when the king came to see the guests he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment so he said to him friend how did you come in here without a wedding garment and he was speechless then the king said to his servants bind him hand and foot take him away and cast him into outer darkness there will be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. So the scene now shifts from the feast itself to a discussion about what it means to be properly addressed for such an occasion. And the first question I'm sure springs to your mind is who is this inappropriately dressed guest and who does he represent? Now the vast majority of Bible teachers who approach this say this guest simply represents an unbeliever. And when it says he's not dressed properly, it means he's not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, he's cast out of the kingdom. Now that, I believe, is the true interpretation of this passage here. But I do need to add I'm not dogmatic about this interpretation because there is another possible way of looking at it and interpreting that. But although it's a minority view, I respect those people who hold that view. The mainstream view of evangelical Christians would say it represents the unbelievers, but a few think otherwise. And if you hold that other view, or know someone who does, then I would suggest that you don't think that person is absolutely wrong in this or in all things. They maybe have just reached a different conclusion on this matter. But regardless, the key point is here, this guy turns up, He's not wearing the appropriate clothes for the feast. And this is usually interpreted as the wedding garment is a picture of the righteousness of Christ. You see, we are told elsewhere on several times in the New Testament that when we trust in Christ, we're clothed in his righteousness. And this guy, he didn't have 
on an appropriate wedding garment. The idea of putting on clothes in the New Testament is not only here, but is on several occasions represented as having to do with a believer living a righteous life. So I think it goes beyond just the imputed righteousness of Christ. It also means something about living the type of life that we're called to live post-salvation. In the book of Ephesians and in the book of Colossians as well and in some other places the imagery of putting on clothes is used of living a righteous and godly life. For example in Colossians Paul writes and says put off your old ways and the Greek word he uses as put off is one that means it describes the taking off of a garment or a coat. So we are told to put off things. We're told to put off, to take off things like wrath and anger and all those type of negative things and sins. And instead of that, to put on mercy and compassion and love and those things which we would ordinarily see and describe as the gifts of the Spirit. So in a symbolic fashion, I believe that what is also being said here is that as you develop a righteous life, as you do what is right, As you do what God calls you to do in your life, you develop Christ-likeness. And by doing that, you are weaving, if you like, a garment that you will one day wear at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I think we can actually, in fairness, stretch this imagery even further. If we turn and look at the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 19, we have there a picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you Revelation 19, 7 and 8, which says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready for him. That's referring to the believers, the bride of Christ, the church. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine line is the righteous acts of the saints. So do you see what I suggest is also going on here? We're also going to be clothed in righteousness at the second coming of Christ. Clothed by our righteous acts as well as the righteousness of Christ himself. If that's true, and I'm interpreting this correctly, I believe we will stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ, absolutely, but also clothed with the righteousness of life because we have lived a righteous life of faith. I see that the way we live our life, and as we live our life, we are being told here that we are constructing, weaving together something that is going to be the wedding garment, the one that we will wear to the marriage supper of the line, the one that is made up of the righteous acts of us as believers, as individuals, and as a community of faith, the true church. And I submit to you that this being appropriately dressed is not only a manifestation of being imputed with the righteousness of Christ and clothed with his righteousness, but it is also a reference to the way, as Christians, we have lived our life. So it means that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we go home to be with the Lord, so to speak, we're not going to be standing in a court of law, standing before a judge, That's the great white throne judgment that awaits the unbelievers. Instead, we are going to the judgment seat of Christ, where we're going to be called in to the the banquet, to the wedding feast, in the palace of the king at the wedding feast. And the garment we wear will consist not only of the imputed righteousness of Christ, but also of the actions that made us suitable to qualify to participate in the king's banquet.
So look at what it says the king's response to those who appear not wearing the righteousness of Christ, not having accepted or lived a holy life. He says, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. And there there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. As the Gospel writer sees it, as Matthew says, the consequences of this refusal are terrible. Yet at the same time, don't lose sight of the fact, do not forget that this passage we should see overall is a reminder that it is an invitation for us to come to a feast, a joyous wedding. His invitation is one of joy. To think of Christianity as gloomy or depressing or just about a list of rules or stopping doing things or giving up stuff is a false representation of our faith. It is the joy that as Christians that we are invited into the life of God that we will miss out if we refuse that invitation. And that's the big message to take on board here. It reminds us that many are deaf to the invitation of Christ. We see in this story, one of these guys was too busy with his estate, his land, his fields, his farm, whatever it was, and the other was too busy with his businesses. Please note that these guys did not necessarily go off and attend another wild party somewhere else or go on some trip or some great immoral adventure. What they did was they simply remained focused on the everyday administration of their personal and business lives. And by doing that, they missed out on the opportunity to hear God speak to them and to invite them. It's very easy for people, it's very easy for us to be too busy with the things of the world so that we forget the things of eternity. To be too preoccupied with the things that we see before us that we forget about the great unseen things that are important to us. It's too easy to listen only to the call and the demands of the world and miss the still small voice of the invitation of Christ. But it also reminds us that the appeal of Christ is not just one where you are called to consider how you might avoid being punished, but is it a call to come in, to enjoy and to see what you will miss if you do not take up God's invite. Those who could not come where they were indeed punished. But the real tragedy in this of missing out on the wedding feast. And if we too refuse the invitation of Christ, I would say our greatest pain will not lie in how we suffer, but by being in the realisation of the precious things that we have missed. To be in a place for eternity to know that we are excluded from the precious presence and celebration of what it means to be with God for eternity. God's invitation to us is at the end of the day an invitation of grace. And those who are gathered in, in this case, from the very highways and the byways, from outside the city, they had no claim on the king, no right of their own to be there. They could never by any stretch of the imagination have even expected an invitation to this wedding feast. None of them deserved it. It came to them out of nothing and some of them graciously embraced it. This final parable is a close continuation and amplification of the previous parable. This parable of the open door tells us of how the Gentiles and the sinners and the ordinary people of the world could too be gathered in, not just the narrow nation of Israel. The parable, of course, strikes the necessary balance in teaching that it is true the door is open to all people, but when they come in, they must bring with them a life fit to seek the love of God 
which has been shown and given to them. You see, grace is not only a gift, it's a responsibility. Any individual who has seen and recognised that call in their life cannot go on living the exact same type of life that they lived before they met Christ Jesus. They must be clothed, in a sense, in this new purity. That's the picture being shown here. Clothed in a new holiness and a new sense of goodness. The door is indeed open for us, for everyone, but the door is not open for the person who comes and wants to remain an unrepentant sinner, wants to remain unchanged and living exactly the same way and in the same state in the world. For the sinner to truly come, they have to accept their need to leave the life of sin behind, the life of godlessness behind. And by doing so, they not only become in, they become a saint. This is the permanent lesson. The way in which any of us come to the Lord demonstrates that we must come before him in and by the right spirit. This closing part of the parable has nothing to do with the actual physical clothes we wear, but it has everything to do with the spirit in which we are prepared to go before the Lord. You see, there are garments of the body, but it is the garment of the mind that's being talked about here. The garment of faith, the garment of reverence. These are the only garments which we ought to be aware of or be wearing when we come to approach God. And too often, too many people go before the Lord without any preparation at all. No thought as to what's wrong in their life. No attempt to change what's wrong in their life. No attempt to seek forgiveness for what's wrong in their life. If only every man and woman came before the Lord prepared to worship, prepared to repent, prepared to pray, prepared by prayer and by a life of service, prepared ultimately by a willingness to self-examination, then worship of the Lord would truly be worship indeed not only in what we think and say but what we actually do we would be prepared to worship in a way which means that things could happen in our hearts things could happen in the life of the church or the community of faith that we exist within and that i believe that things can actually happen in the affairs of the world because living the holy life means we do not wrestle against people but against powers and principalities and thereby by coming to God and approaching him in the right way we can be empowered by the spirit and the power of God to change the very lives of people around us and the world in which we live. Okay, my friends, that's it for today. I do hope you find that helpful. We'll be picking up on a brand new section tomorrow, and I do trust you'll join me again tomorrow. Let me remind you, my name's Jeremy McCandless, and I'm the pastor of the Life Community, this online community who've made the decision to make the study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of their daily lives. My goal is to post new episodes 
every week, Monday to Friday, and to work together through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. The podcast is hosted on thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com, but you can subscribe to it and receive every episode wherever it is you find it and wherever it is you get your podcasts from. But to be assured of access to all the different ways and all the different teaching I make available on places like YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn and Patreon, then just visit thebibleproject.buzzsprite.com and you should find active links to everything there, as well as a full transcript of everything I've said. So with that all said, it's bye for now, and I do hope I'll see you right back here tomorrow. It'll be tomorrow for me. It'll be whatever day and whatever pace it suits you to connect again with us on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.